one and all to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Welcome to the future, Pete A. Hey, hero. Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, where episode 312, the season three penultimate episode, There is a Tide, comes to you now via Skull Candy Dish. And just a bit of fleet news before we launch into the episode, Pete. On the other side of this country, the Los Angeles film industry is back on a uh, a short to medium term lockdown. Uh, This almost assuredly is going to impact the filming of season two of Picard. And uh, I I suppose what impact that has overall on the season is yet to be determined. The February 1 start date is definitely in jeopardy. You're not going to put Sir Patrick Stewart in any kind of danger whatsoever. Um, This is just the way that it is. And I think wise for fans to kind of accept that's probably going to be backed up is it significant at this point we will have to see we we have vaccines but the rollout of the vaccines has been slow this is what happens matt when you don't have a, a chain working together with a federation yes pete interesting that as we're about to dive into an episode that that among other things explores the interface between you know, great society for all and capitalism uh, and what's the meeting point of those two. Here we are having in this country nationalized the, um, the, the vaccine response, but there's been a, there have been hiccups in the, the, the rollout of it and whatnot. I suppose hiccups were to be expected in a country of any size, particularly one of our size, but it's, it's, it still is not the perfect future that we hoped for. How about that? So it seems that perhaps Strange New Worlds uh, will get the jump on Picard and join this 800 stories of Star Trek. Pete, a couple different ways I could respond. First of all, I think with you saying 800 stories, uh, there was the grand reveal on social media. Aha! It's not actually 800 episodes of Star Trek. Your celebration is a lie for that 800 count includes the movies. For me, Pete, can we, yes, episodes, that's normally how you describe uh, a a unit of television viewing. Can we say that for the 54 years of Star Trek that we can maybe just broaden the term episode to include the arc that is the motion picture, the arc that is another sit down of the Wrath of Khan and so forth. And I think by that definition, we could still say 800, I think 800 episodes with that asterisk of some of these episodes or movies, I I think we can nonetheless celebrate the arbitrary but uh, wonderful number of this being the 800th Star Trek episodic story thing. These are the 800 voyages. (laughs) Indeed. And I mean, as for future Star Trek, as for Star Trek in 2021, I'm sure we'll delve further uh, into our season three wrap. Indeed, Pete, I would propose that we're going to get perhaps attached to the season three finale, some sort of, you know, Star Trek returns in the spring or the summer, you know, whatever it is, we're going to get some kind of, um, you know, next, next waypoint. But 
Uh, Lower Deck Season 2 probably is the next one up since it has not stopped production since Season 1. We know Discovery is underway. We know that Strange New Worlds is uh, meant to be started uh, in the Toronto area in, I believe, Pete, next month. And insofar as filming in Toronto seems to have gone just fine for Discovery Season 4, um, Pete, the future is bright. I mean, it's going to take a while for these live action shows to finish pre-production and all, or pardon me, post-production and all of that. So whatever the future holds, whatever the order is, we know that there's plenty more Star Trek coming. I mean, we did have a story this week. Tignataro actually passed up or may have rejiggered some work on Discovery Season 4. She's due to go back to Toronto in May, which seems like a really long shoot. But then again, they've had some long shoots, so November to May on on Season 4, and perhaps by the end of 2021, we're, we're talking discovery again um and and she did this specifically because she didn't want to travel twice given the uh covid concerns yes november to may sounds a bit long normally um i feel like productions tend to take a three three and a half week break around the holidays i don't know if they did that this year but let's say for the sake of argument they did you know therefore tack on the extra at the end let alone do you plan to have longer shoots just in order to keep things uh safe and to sit you know as opposed to let's work 10 more hours or you know or or whatever it is let's let's extend the day let's double up you know whatever it is just to keep things physically spread out do do you also uh, logistically spread out the schedule um if that means for tignataro she of course uh having battled breast cancer in the past and wanting to keep herself as healthy as possible uh, if that suggests that she might not show up until the end of the fourth season, which surely must be coming to an end of filming in May, uh, I suppose that's just uh, that is what it is. With that, let's head into our mission briefing. The Viridian fires on Discovery as it turns towards the Federation headquarters, sitting in the captain's chair aboard Discovery. Osira demands the Viridian reduce fire lest it cause real damage and ruin the ruse. Indeed, we go inside Federation HQ where Vance is initially buying into the trick. Osira on the Viridian, wink wink, must have been waiting for discovery. Oh, somehow Osira has figured out how to conjoin into the mycelial network to have come with this jump. Uh, But will Vance open the shield? This is when Vance says, hmm, not yet, and kind of thinks things over. We go back to the bridge where uh, there's a bit of a code found by the uh, Emerald Chain folks. Ancient Earth Entertainment. It somehow won't delete. Oh, well, just shut it down. Uh, We see in one of the screens towards the rear of the bridge, uh, Zora's eyes or something meant to approximate Zora's eyes. In the ready room, the bridge crew is under lock and key. Pete, Zara appears, okay? Now, let's. I want everybody to be clear here. There's Zora, okay? <laughs> That's the personification of the sphere data, uh, a name that we will not hear aloud chronologically until at least a thousand years after this episode. Uh, however, there's Zara, the bad guy uh, once sent out into the ice. Uh, indeed, Pete, he's got um, 
you know, uh, the, the, the black burn of the cold on his one hand. Frostbite. <laughs> Frostbite. He will quickly put a glove on in order to help with the acting. Um, and he notes that it took only 12 minutes to take over the ship and getting it was easy. Oh, by the way, he's brought Rin along and none of these people should be harmed. Oh, faceless guards. In the Courier Network, books ship the Eon Eagle, or the Centennial Bird, whichever you prefer, morphs around the twisted wreckage of other ships. Burnham says they're 90 seconds out. But wait, look up ahead. There is a Wanderer-class ship that we don't know is this Federation, Starfleet, whatever. But there's no morphing around that, especially when your shields are at 20%, right, Matt? Uh, absolutely not. The ship then gets reconfigured and ultimately makes it through okay. Uh, back to headquarters, Vance is told that Discovery is 60 seconds away from hitting the shield. Pete, this is a case of dueling story clocks. Uh, is it time to open up a panel for Disco? Indeed it is, but wait... There's also Mr. Booker's ship who's going to that's going to be appearing. It showed up on sensors. Uh, indeed, Burnham tries to send a message, but apparently HQ doesn't get it, which which is good, I guess, for the episode. Um, however, even though they've come out of subspace, uh, I'm not quite clear why her message doesn't get through. But Pete, I know the for a matter of fact. Were, the comms were fried. <laughs> oh, well, Pete, that would do it. Uh, their solution is to get Book's ship to reform to enter Disco's shuttle bay once Disco's shields come down, but before Disco has entered and they pass through uh, the headquarter shields. Brace for impact! We see them get in there, the camera tumbling and turning as there's fire that takes us to the credits. Credits which show that this episode is written by Kenneth Lynn and directed by uh, Pete. Is that newcomer Jonathan Frakes? <laughs> is am I saying that correctly? Third third episode of the season here, and arguably uh, his most deftly handled the action, uh, making it an easy choice for him. Camera sweeps by the Viridian and through the distortion field into FHQ, where Discovery waits osira wants to know how a ship got into the shuttle bay uh they can't tell how many life signs because of the fire suppression system this is important information for later blocking the sensors however zara's regulators are mounting up and osira wants whoever it is alive she arrives in engineering where the greatest scientist in three sectors, Invigilator Aurelio, the wonderful return here of Ken Mitchell, not in prosthetics, and the wheelchair, you know, let's not leave out the, the real world fact that he has ALS. This was a disclosure uh, in the last year uh, that he went public with, and clearly going with a Stephen Hawking type of presentation for his character. I like, first of all, I mean, it's, it, 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 it warms the heart that uh, Ken Mitchell is back despite, you know, this, this infirmity and unfortunately ALS, something that, uh, that can only progress over time. Uh, so it's great to bring him back. I mean, he's clearly a fan favorite. I appreciate 
for purely dramatic purposes, I appreciate that Aurelio and his uh, his more upright wheelchair gives us this character as somebody who's on the same uh, physical level as uh, as the other actors. Um, he, he's not quite standing in the wheelchair, but it's close to it. I don't know if this is something that Ken Mitchell prefers or not. I don't know if it's more comfortable or not as an actor. Um, but I again, just the character of Aurelio, we're going to dig into him a little bit more uh, later. But I again, just in terms of having this character who can look other characters eye to eye, uh, I, I think that dramatically that works, that he is he, he's kind of visually the equal of others despite uh, despite him being in this wheelchair. Um, and again, I hope I've said that all correctly to differentiate out you know the the i think the sad concern that we have for ken mitchell and this progressive disease and the appreciation of having him return to play yet another character here in discovery um but focusing solely on aurelio he's near blushing at the majesty of science uh it's clear to him that stamets uh, stamets is uh, a link from the the hardware to the mycelial network can can he work here? Can Aurelio work here? Phew. Everything is safe, courtesy of Osira. She who would free the galaxy of the yoke of dilithium and share this beautiful spore technology. So, Pete, if nothing else, we have in this performance from Ken Mitchell, somebody who's, you know, in, in the Klingon characters he's played, or at least two of the three of them, who's been very, you know, yelly, you know, alpha male. Here, this is a guy that's just like, wow, science. Hey, Osira, thanks for letting me science. Everything is great. Yeah, the the nuance here uh, definitely gets noticed. And uh, she tells her old friend, though it's safe to work fast, though they may need to jump away if things go awry. In the shuttle bay, Matt, Chekhov's dots work to put out the fires. You know, they have the fire suppression system that is one of the few things working on its own and uh, blocking life signs. Uh, Book has secured grudge. They had checked on her uh, on a hologram prior to ramming uh, the Eon Eagle into the shuttle bay here and uh, gives Burnham another dose of radiation meds. It cures the the burn on her face, not the, the burn, capital B. Uh, a radiation burn what's that a radiation burn not the burn not the radiation burn correct they have to find stamets no burnham does book gives her a concealing device to hide her life signs from sensors he's only got one and they're expecting to find a pilot uh plus he doesn't know discovery like she does so she should go save the day but is this the wrong moment for her to tell him she loves him for the first time? Oh, it, Pete, it's always the right time, okay? She says it in her own way. He says that she's actually said it before in her sleep, so some playfulness there. He, of course, loves her back. She runs off to go deal with the mission. He stays. Uh, we quick cut to Zara who's bringing regulators and wants this life sign in the shuttle bay taken back to headquarters. It's very strange that disco isn't communicating with HQ. There's a transporter lock around the whole ship. The Viridian is just out there hanging out. Wait a minute. Vance has finally figured it out. All ships, red alert, weapons hot, 
Osira is on Discovery. We cut to the ready room where, let's not forget, says guard guy, no talking. Oh, by the way, here's Book. We've caught him. Uh, everyone is reminded to keep, or rather the, the, the two guards here are reminded by Zara to keep everyone alive. However, Zara punches Book in the tum-tum. They're going to rematch next time, sweetheart. Almost as though they know they have a season finale to deal with in a week. Uh, and Book gives the kind of eye to Tilly, not quite a nod, but kind of, hey, Michael Burnham's out there going to help us sort of look. In a corridor, Burnham encounters a goon prying Starfleet badges off the wall of remembrance. Uh, he stabs her in the left leg and she removes the blade. She takes his chain computer and learns that the transport function is unavailable. So she limps off, leaving a trail of blood that never, ever gets followed up on. Perhaps, Pete, it was just a visual flourish. I will say this, Pete. We've talked in other podcasts, particularly Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., two gunshots equals you're dead. One gunshot means, oh, man, someone get me a sling. My arm is out of commission, but I'm fine. Pete, a lesser known variety of that is knife to the thigh, which is TV code for, uh, goodness, you're going to have to act with a act with a limp, but everything's going to be okay. Um, all she needs to do, Pete, is to get a strip of cloth to prevent the bleeding, which she doesn't. Uh, I know probably chronologically in her next scene, um, though there's other things going on, um, you know, is when she, there's other things going on in the story, but very quickly she's going to phaser cauterize it. So maybe my concern is one born of uh, of perceiving the episode through its own presentation and not kind of the Burnham timeline of it. But, uh, you know, just... We've seen it before. What you do is you rip off a sleeve at the stitching at the shoulder and then you tie it off and whatnot. But Pete, this is a story, if nothing else, that's going to keep moving. Uh, she takes a space radio and heads deeper into Nakatomi Plaza. The USS ONG something uh, comes up on Discovery as Vance places the fleet on Kaminar on Red Alert. Uh, Minister Osira reaches out and apologizes for the pretense, but she's there to talk. She says Discovery's crew is boarding shuttles. She's going to hold on to the bridge crew. He asks her to remove the jammer so he can beam them back over himself, but she will not allow it. She needs leverage. But if things go well, he'll have them back soon. Uh, Vance is told there is a shuttle on the way. He orders security and medical to intercept and orders the ready room prepared for a visitor before we head to a Jeffrey's tube and a bleeding Burnham using that phaser to cauterize her wound as she eavesdrops on the chain and hears that Osira is leaving the ship for Federation HQ. She sends a message to mom, Mayday, Mayday, uh, mom not showing up in this episode. Pete, it's not even a theory. Can we just widely assume mom will return in the season three finale? Chekhov's mom. There you go. Um, which is funny because he had a real one too, but I digress. Um, I should mention too, Burnham wonders if she's going to see uh, mom again in a distant future, maybe with dad. Um, that a curious line. Back to headquarters, Vance receives Osira and her four 
officers slash goons. Pete, she's going to be meeting with Vance, not the acronym I'd like to use, POTOF. That's president of the Federation. Um, And both sides are just told to keep it cool, everybody. No fightings and such. Uh, They go into the ready room in HQ. Cut to the ready room in Disco. Ooh, right a room high five on that transition there. Uh, Reese and Bryce are tapping a signal. And boy, the the fact that they're tapping makes everybody on the bridge crew angry. They're yelling at each other. This draws the guards in, literally into the circle of them. And the guards get beat. What was that tapping? It was Moore's Code, year one of Starfleet Academy. Uh, They note that the chain computer has taken over, so no luck using a computer uh, solution here. There's some catch-up regarding Saru, Culber, and Adira. Uh, But ultimately, let's go team as we prepare for more action. During the negotiations on Federation HQ, we have Eli, uh, the biometric lie detector here, monitoring Osira. They gave it a face because a red light used to make people uncomfortable, Matt. Uh, the bridge crew is safe. They've been ordered not to be harmed uh, by the Emerald Chain goons there. All of it is truthful and checks out. Uh, Saru is not on board, Vance learns. Um, did he go to Kaminar? She wants to know. Uh, but she's here for peace and wants to unite with the federation all again which checks out with eli um she has her problem her empire running out of dilithium surely he's been told what rin knows that they have this scarcity and he has a spore drive he cannot replicate so with her most well-funded scientific institutions in the known galaxy, they can strike some sort of deal, right? Indeed, the writerly flourish here, this idea that uh, not only is the Federation a symbol of hope and the chain never quite has gotten there, but combine the best, a chain of planets and a Federation of mercantile exchanges. Osira, I doff my cap to thee for such a such a great twisting of chain and federation and whatnot. The proposal ultimately, Pete, a new federation. Back to Discovery, Zara is told that Theta431's comm is missing. He does the quick search for it, finds it, go get whoever that is. In engineering, Aurelio is removing the neural block from Stamets, who's also tied to the stairs. Both men share an enjoyment of Andorian opera, perhaps they can listen to more together one day. After all, Osira loves the science. Um, Stamets notes that Aurelio has piercings behind his ear. I actually don't know that once Stamets gets the neural block removed that he actually had the opportunity to see behind Aurelio's ear. But right. the, 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 <laughs> the shot here, the close-up very close to the ear with Stamets and whatnot, the, the camera suggests it and the dialogue says that he saw it. So, so fine. Perhaps... Those piercings, evidence of three kids with an Orion partner. Um, It's implied that Aurelio feels fortunate to have had children, given his condition. Uh, Oh, by the way, Stamets has a child and partner, too. You, me, friends work together. Um, They talk about the mycelial network and the tardigrade DNA being unreplicatable. But Tisk Tisk says Aurelio, we can just grow new tardigrades 
Here's to new beginnings, Mr. Stamets. As they close in on Burnham in the Jeffries tube here, she ties herself to the uh, the bulkhead. We all know what's coming. Triggers the fire suppression. Gets the oxygen purge going here. There's beat, beat, uh, drama, tension with the ready room uh, bridge crew overhearing until Burnham tells Zara he's gonna need more regulators to mount up. Pete, a, a, a darkly amusing moment on the bridge where that, uh, that downed regulator floats on by. I, maybe I have a question about the actual geographics of whether that would happen, but it's too good a moment to not have um, uh, Burnham um, having her diehard moment there in terms of needing more regulators. She runs no shoes. Ah, thank goodness, Pete. There's no glass room that gets shattered diehard style. <laughs> Uh, while Rin says, you know, back back in the ready room, or, let's get the hell out of here. It's a great Rin moment. Pete, back to Federation HQ, where there's a snack tray. Osiris enjoying an apple. Isn't uh, it a snack tray, though? <laughs> well, um, she can taste that it is replicated uh, and talks about the beauties, uh, the, the beauty of real apples. Uh, Pete, I will maintain our clean rating on uh, Apple Podcasts. It's crap, says Vance. We reconstitute it from uh, the atomic level. And I love the the, <laughs> the little bit of apple that Osira kind of <laughs> spits yep. out. Um, it's The whole thing is just wonderful. Um, I should mention, Pete, as well, there's the reference that essentially Vance implying or, or quickly stating that it's better to have replicated less delicious apples than it is to get natural apples with your, your boot to the throat of the people that are being oppressed, you know? So there's that, there's all that, which is a lovely little moment. He's never eaten a real one because they don't commit atrocities. Uh, She brings up that deep space two, five, three map by my math. That is several away from deep space nine. Uh, she's been trading with them for years. Uh, he, uh, is asked to sanction that, uh, in which case she will, uh, ask for them to outlaw slavery in the Emerald Chain Charter. Uh, there's also the Quajon system amongst others with these prime directive violations that continue to go on. In the height of these negotiations, both are interrupted by an advisor uh, with the situation aboard Discovery. And then, Matt, the the ultimate chip in her negotiation here, she unveils the Armistice Apple Agreement terms. Indeed. Uh think peter was all presented over crappy apple um vance overall this seems like fair concessions on both sides he wants to read it more which is a convenient way to pause his story and take us back to discovery where rin is going to replicate all life signs on the ship uh indeed kind of going back in the logs the last three months so everyone will appear just about everywhere at once uh, Book is ready to help. He's going to stay here in the ready room with uh, Rin, given a phaser rifle. Uh, everybody else uh, is going to head out back. 
uh, three, two, one, go. We see that the life signs indeed do get uh, maxed out with uh, Rain and Book standing their ground. In engineering, Aurelio is talking about how great the, cha the chain is. Some methods aren't great, but Osira brings freedom. Aurelio says that, you know, in another in another uh, way that life under the chain could have unfolded, he should not be there. But this time, uh, with a genetic defect, uh, he was not overlooked because Osira gave him her confidence. Osira loves the science, you know, like those pesticides on Kwai John. It's great. Um, he is, of course, told by Stamets that uh, Osira also pushed the world towards famine. She also supports labor camps. Great line here, Pete. I can't imagine what the inspiration was. She is both more than she appears to be and exactly what she appears to be. Pete, kind of, if you will, both the chess player and the eater of chess pieces. And as she's aboard FHQ making the best deals... Okay. Uh, engineering is interrupted by phaser stun and it's Burnham coming in here to free Stamets. Uh, meanwhile, our uh, discovery ready room action is ready to ratchet up. We got book. We got Ren uh, prepared to hold off the regulators. Uh, back to engineering Stamets. Pete, again, Stamets is told by a superior officer how to act as things unfold. Let's not forget he had he had uh, resisted Captain Tilly's orders uh, in the last episode. Here, uh, he the you know he he the lesser uh, officer around uh, around Burnham. He's told to leave engineering, and once again he says no. He underlines the stakes. Saru and Culber back at the uh, planet. He's now told that Adira is there too. He's insistent to go to the nebula, uh, heading into the spore cube, and gets Vulcan neck pinched for his troubles. Back to HQ, Vance is still reading, and Osira is looking over Eli, a blank canvas. Why not base him on someone real? Again, this kind of discussion, perhaps a bit more in the background than other Star Trek episodes might have had. I know this is heavy on action, and Star Trek is certainly an action-adventure show oftentimes, but this notion of... He could have been based on something real instead of something synthetic. Uh, ultimately, though, Vance gets done with his reading, says the armistice is impressive. Uh, but who will be the face of it? Who will represent the chain? Uh, Osira notes, perhaps someone appropriate. You know, maybe a scientist who, wink, wink, won't be a proxy for her, played by Kenneth Mitchell. <laughs> yeah, and then that they're going to put her on trial. Um, and... This sends her for uh, a bit of a curveball here. Try her for her crimes. What? Where's Osiris' pardon? Illegal and invalid argument, Vance. Spare me your judgment. Um, Vance says he's ready to put fear and isolation and clouded moral clarity behind the Federation, but he has asked his people to die for the Federation, and he's willing to risk it all for that today. And Pete, she walks out of the deal-making very angry. Uh, the place where I felt in this story the best of uh, Frake's direction is on this bridge scene. In fact, it's it's blocked in a very similar way to Star Trek First Contact, which, of course, Jonathan Frakes directed way back in 1996. 
uh, some of the angles, the the red alert, and the tension again ratcheting up here. Osira having returned to the bridge, finding out from Zara that things have not gone as she planned here, that the hostages are not secured. Though everyone is still on board, and they have Rin and Book here uh, to answer. Uh, indeed, Osira angry that the ship was not secured. She tells Zara to secure the airlocks and to check each one. Otherwise, you'll be sent out of an airlock. Uh, Osira asks for sweet Aurelio to leave the bridge, lest he witness some unpleasant violence. However, he's going to stay. Pete, perhaps that seed planted by Stamets. Uh, Osira tells Rin to fix the sensors. He says no. Now Rin fix the sensors. Again, Pete, this is what you're talking about, I think. Both the writing and the direction, the blocking, etc. are really kind of building up the tension here. And kudos to all involved to not have her go fix it. No, now I'm more angry. Uh, climax is about to happen in a moment. Now I'm really, really angry. It's scarier for her to be a cool customer the entire way through, even as Rin talks about real strength and loyalty and love, saying that she has all she has is fear. Uh, she brings her rifle to Rin's head, lowers the rifle, as Book says that he can bring her to the Verubin Nebula, all the dilithium she'll ever need. Uh, she considers it, Pete, then, I must confess, in a shocking moment, blasts Rin away to nothing. R.I.P. Rin. Um... And she calls for Book to be truth serumed up and for the Viridian to start to fire. Yeah, shocking that they would get rid of a, a guest actor married to a regular actor, right? Uh, Pete, I, th I think you take the good with the bad. You take the parts as they come along. Um, and uh, and there's, there's your story arc for Rin. Um, Pete, perhaps he can return one day, not as an Andorian. Uh, in the disco launch area, uh, or a disco launch area, Pete, totally separate from the window that sometimes people look out of and have exposition. Exposition window? <laughs> um, Stamets is in, he's wearing an emergency launch field generator. Uh, Burnham's going to boot him off the ship and take away one piece of the puzzle that Osiris needs to jump. Uh, indeed, Pete, perhaps the most important piece. Uh, a phaser is set to overload, and Burnham steps to the other side of a, of a blast door, closing it. But, of course, there's some of that patented transparent aluminum there to help make the scene sing. Uh, she's reminded by Stamets uh, that uh, the whole crew came with her so that she wouldn't be alone. How could she do this to everyone? The phaser explodes. Hull breach. He gets pulled out in the emergency uh launch field generator and gets tractored to safety one can heavily assume by another federation ship there's a hoarseness to anthony rapp's delivery here that really sells this scene and we're definitely going to need to talk in our theory segment about what this means for a critical relationship aboard discovery uh, we have, right after that explosion, we have Zara capturing Burnham. But elsewhere, the bridge crew takes out baddies, then phasers up. Carry as many as you can carry. Um, they're going to make it to the bridge no matter what. Great leadership moment here from Tilly. If someone falls, you keep going. Uh, Pete, I don't know whether it's worth discussing now or in theories, but hey, there's a military nature to Starfleet. 
Stamets is not always respecting that in some of these scenes and in prior episodes. Tilly is right. This is a military security situation. This is not the time for sympathy. If someone falls, you keep moving. Uh, and then Pete, wait, Russell, Russell, what is that over there on the other side of debris? It is the dots, the fire suppression system here. It's the sphere data. You've got you've got one in science blue with the eyes. You've got one in command yellow. You've got one in red operations. Maybe not going to make it that one. Uh, but these DOT uh, 23s, they are here to help and uh, help the captain take back the ship. Pete, we have an incoming threat analysis. What is showing up on your sense oars? Minister Osira, Matt, maker of the best deals, except the best deal that she doesn't make. I very, very much appreciate the uh, the treaty reading scenes, if you will, the, the HQ ready room scenes, uh, her offering up these these differences, a different perspective on where she's coming from. I think that that is very, very Star Trek. Um, and in a within those scenes, outside the body of the episode, I think it risks, in, in the best sense possible, risks making the Federation a baddie in that has the Federation considered all the different perspectives? Perhaps not. Um, however, I think you have the episode, not even I think, I know that the episode ultimately underlines her as the the brutal villain the the one leaning towards dictatorship the one who's prepared to sacrifice uh people that she's supposed to be worried about in terms of their famine and their health and so forth so great great use here of what was a black-hatted uh one-dimensional villain giving her some more depth but still saying uh to paraphrase stamets she still is what she presents as which is this dangerous despot i will confess to not initially believing that Janet Kidder was the the choice for the big bad here, but with each passing opportunity she's been given as Osira, she continues to claim it. So uh, good on her there. I have to imagine too, Matt, in the casting of a role, uh, probably difficult, like, all right, who's who's big enough of a name for recognition, but is also going to cover her entire face with green makeup and wear a wig? And as we've discussed before, you know, uh, the production looking to uh, to also highlight uh, Canadian actors. So, I mean, Pete, she wore the green, she wore the mask, uh, wore the wig. Uh, she's from Canada. She's got a bit of a name. I mean, in retro and she can do, most importantly, she can do the job wonderfully. Um, similarly kind of, uh, villainous is the return of Zara who, though, I think after the second episode of this season, we kind of widely presumed, you know, go walk in the night. Maybe the ice parasites will get you and maybe they won't. I think we all assumed it was him walking to his death. Not completely unsurprising that he would come back, even though it wasn't on my radar. Great use of him. He's a fabulous number two villain. Yeah, to get Jake T. Weber back after 10 episodes, thinking we left him back at the colony. He he got it in the in the parasitic ice for sure. 
Um, and there's a toll. Okay. He's got some black fingers on the one hand. All right. But to maintain this grudge against Tilly, against the, uh, the Federation and discovery here and to be brought in with the Emerald chain. Remember this was a courier uh, shaking down the, the colony and to join up with them against uh, Starfleet says something. Well, Pete, with only one episode left for the season, let's scan ahead for some theories. Um, Pete, will the finale will the finale see the answer to the lullaby mystery? In a manner of speaking, we've kind of answered that mystery, right? I mean, the the lullaby that uh, Adira uh, got from uh, Senatal that. Uh, was also present on the um, the Federation siege ship, uh, and the distress signal was the uh, you know initial appearance of that. Is there greater significance? I mean, I'm I'm only gonna be for that if we could get if we could get non back. I think that the fact that it was so. Uh story universal not scientifically universal but the fact that so many people knew it across so many generations i feel like to say well they all knew it because it was distress signal like to me that doesn't it doesn't add up fully i will feel like they did not satisfactorily answer it if there's not some sort of some sort of greater reveal uh in the finale i also feel like it is minor enough that it's not necessarily set up for the next season you mentioned non i think it would be logical and wonderful she shows up in the uh in the finale if she doesn't and then we're told oh she's going to show up for eight episodes next season like i think that's those are both equal possibilities um pete will we see in the finale the resolution of planet dilithium as a future for dilithium or will we see some sort of resolution of all get spore tech well it's interesting how this episode moves the chips to the middle of the table, you know, headed into a finale where you've got the captain and the medical officer and this lovable new character in Adira uh, trapped on this planet, story clock ticking away on them, the means to get there taken away from Discovery in Stamets, and then you have uh, this idea that we've had present in Discovery since the end of the first season that it's going to wind up adrift with an AI in it uh, in a nebula at some point. And I feel like the spore data, Zora, the eyes here, the, the dots all coming together i feel we're really being pushed towards that pete i think that's a really really potent theory and now that's added concern uh you know good concern uh, for the finale that we're going to somehow lose the ship which of course is though it's been a welcome set for these three seasons it's not not the heart of the show the characters are uh 
thrown into the mix, I think, is um, the show. Uh, the show has not heard this podcast, but the show addressing a complaint that we've discussed, which is, hey, Sportech is totally cool, right, man? Well, we had a whole, you know, a whole story arc in season two about um, about the particulars of the, the strain that it puts on my CL network. And we know how it was uh, difficult for the, the tardigrade that was captured, et cetera, et cetera. Here we have Aurelio saying, you know, no problem. We'll just grow new tardigrades, which I think is meant to be wide-eyed, easy science, but also to us, we're supposed to say, but Ripper was a cool, nice tardigrade that just didn't want to be abused in the cage and whatnot. So I feel like we we're not about to have a dilithium solution given as how, or, or maybe we will, maybe that's the better of the two. I feel like clean, happy spore tech with the mention of the tardigrade, it, the show is reminding us that that's not actually a long-term solution, even though the show has kind of returned to it for this season. Yeah. It's this interesting push pull of dilithium caused this terrible calamity and there's less of it, by the way, Matt, we've been told before it's, it's bad for the universe. You know, uh, it's, it's causing these holes. It's, it's causing the, the space ozone, uh, hole. Um, and then the, the problems with the spore drive hurting the mycelial network. So they both seem to have pitfalls, which is interesting. It doesn't make either an ideal solution this is the first time we've been told that the federation cannot replicate the spore drive which programmable matter yada yada oh look i just replicated a spore drive maybe it's that the federation and i i would agree that the episode does not um say much more than the federation can't replicate it but perhaps it's this it's the idea of the interface um, for the very reasons that are kind of covered in this episode with Stamets talking to Aurelio that, you know, to, to copy paste the this part and the that part, that's no problem. To get it to actually work without Stamets, that that, that is, I guess, the issue. I wouldn't have minded maybe a, an, a, an extra scene here or there just to kind of confirm that, although... From a writerly perspective, if the Stamets Aurelio conversation is meant to address that, then so be it. Um, I don't know that I agree 100% with you, Pete, that um, dilithium remains uh, the the ozone, the, the hole in the ozone causing thing. Um, if you can remove the risk of, the, of another burn, can you then recrystallized dilithium can you get it back to the next generation era type thing yes the very same next generation that said but wait now it's causing a hole in the space ozone and then promptly ignored it uh, look they have to go faster than light somehow and i think i think by the end of next week's episode they're gonna it's gonna be clean happy dilithium and maybe some reference of and we'll use the angled uh thingies just like voyager did to solve the problem back in the 24th century but i think we're headed perhaps towards if my choice is dilithium or spore or nobody goes faster than light i think it's going to be dilithium versus the other two well if i blew your mind before matt hold on to your skull cap now have we met a character in the past on discovery who can recrystallize dilithium uh well pete i'm reminded of uh queen zahia from uh the planet of people where she could do that 
Queen Poe of oh, Zahia. The, the, the Queen of Zahia. There you go. Yes. Pete, it, it was it was garbled in my memory banks, but there you go. The Queen of Zahia. Sure. Uh, huh. A queen. You mean a queen like Grudge? Maybe. I mean, yes. All of that, all of that checks out. Am I totally on board with that as a theory right now? I feel like it would be a little Deus Ex Machina, Hand of the Writer. I mean, it, I guess Ex Machina, perhaps. And, and I guess to be fair, it would literally Paw be, Ex Machina. I mean, Deus Ex Machina, God and Machine. She, you know, queens are <laughs> queens are, are are kind of presented in a godly uh, way, a lowercase G, and. Um, she would be there to help solve the machine. I think it would be slightly weak writing that the solution to all our problems has been with book all along since the beginning. Therefore, it was baked in as opposed to, hey, we know the solution to this, of course, because you've tried it out the whole season, you know, prior to shooting. I, Pete, I won't love that as a solution, but right now it's the best solution we got. We expect that uh, Burnham's mother, Gabrielle, is going to show up in the finale. Otherwise, why the panicked uh, call here to update her and why the uh, line about seeing her in the future, maybe even with uh, Burnham's father. But uh, what about Book? Will he survive the finale? I know I've pointed out before that Discovery has the tradition of season-long middle-aged male leads who are only there for the one season. I think that David Ajala might be an exception to that. Uh, I have a funny feeling that he'll be around next season. That's not because I've seen Twitter or I've heard rumblings. I just feel like if you want to evolve the character of Burnham and maybe not give her you know, suffering all the time and want to give her some sort of evolution from somebody who was this completely kind of in the Vulcan pattern of totally dedicated to service and totally disinterested with self. And you're sending her on this arc where she can find love and she can find companionship. Let's not kill off book, you know, at the 80% point next week and have her, you know, yet again alone and whatnot. Um, this need not be another tragedy for Burnham. Just keep Book around and, you know, have him uncomfortably put on the thing. And all right, Ensign Booker, if, if there's any luck, you could be lieutenant next season. Or at the rate Tilly does things, maybe you could be an admiral. Who knows? I mean, all the signs are there, though. Uh, she's professed her love for him. Uh, the story seems to be running out of reasons to have him around. Similarly nowhere near to the extent of book though we're led to believe that burnham might be in some danger here what insofar as she's been captured by uh by zara i mean look what she's done with stamets she's she's isolated herself from that very important relationship she's put her fate in the hands of the crew but I'm not saying that she leaves the show, but could there be some kind of cliffhanger? You know, we speculated very early in the season and, you know, the first half of the season was really about her finding her way back with Starfleet and whether she belonged. The promotion to first officer, the demotion 
from first officer and now this situation. So, you know, could she get stuck in some carbonite and, and sent to Java? You know, Pete, I would initially, I would initially not pair up story stuff. I, I, I initially would not have paired up story stuff for the season finale with the season premiere. It's just in the last couple of days that the, um, that Star Trek has officially announced what the title is of next week's episode. Uh, I guess what was there was a Writers Guild placeholder or whatever it is. But next week's episode titled That Hope Is You Part 2, I think that only lends itself to, you know, if we haven't carried every theme and every story bit from the season premiere all the way through every episode of the season, the fact that one can assume it was always intended to be called That Hope Is You Part 2, if only because of the the weird hanging That Hope Is You Part 1, you know, that was just kind of out there. Um, the notion that some of those themes could return, I think that's only helped by the title. That said, while I'm, I'm not one of those people who's concerned, you know, oh, Burnham has cried again. I wonder, I wonder what the twin tug and tug and pull is of, yes, obviously, Sonique Martin-Green is playing the lead in this show, so she's going to get the really juicy stuff more often than, you know, than your Detmers or your Woshikans of the story. Do we need to end another season with Burnham is tasked with the heaviest decision, the most important decision? Is she going to leave Starfleet? Is she out? Like, to have Burnham settle in as the most important person on the show, but still as just part of the ship, part of the crew, part of things happening in a functioning way, I would be okay with the latter versus the former. We all know who Stamets is referring to when he says he has a child, but I think none of us were really ready for the deepening that quickly of that relationship. Yeah, I would agree that it's a bit of story yada yada-ing. Um, we've seen the pieces there. I don't know that we have felt the pieces. And I think of other iterations of star trek that might have shown that a bit better albeit with the pizzazz with less pizzazz with less kind of uh story urgency and story razzle dazzle that discovery has i think of the episode where data kind of sort of adopts the kid whose mother who's lost his mother uh, i believe she was killed on the way mission so data kind of adopts the kid and you see um, I don't recall whether it was in montage or whatnot, but you see, you know, they're building models together. They're doing paintings together and you kind of buy like, oh, there's this adoption kind of thing going on here, even though it doesn't go past the episode. Um, I don't know that we've seen that from Stamets to Adira other than the scenes where Stamets says, hey, let's work together or hey, kids, sometimes you work so hard. Look, you forgot to undo the thing and now we can get the the sensor data that we need. So I don't, I don't emotionally buy it, but I know the story thinks it has put all the pieces in place. All right, let's dig into, and and I say that hesitantly, the real mystery of this episode, Matt, and that's what the replicators make food out of. Um, to me, it makes a ton of sense. Um, I was not as surprised by that revelation as others were. Um, I, I, I 
I have not cracked open the technical manual, the next generation technical manual to see how routine that is. Um, but to me, I feel like in the 32nd century, that's that's all making sense for me. As as vaguely gross as it is, I think it's it, it is what it is. I mean, we've never been told that it wasn't coming from human waste yet they've talked about materials that were used in it that it was more akin to uh, transporter technology yes there's a different uh, sense of taste texture uh, things that are made as opposed to uh, things that are grown but um, to have uh Again, this uncomfortable idea, and and I get it. Like astronauts uh, recycle their urine in space to uh, to get drinking water. However, this is a little different. Um, yeah, it is. I think. I mean, it, it's neither a huge story foul in that. Like, what I never, I never saw this coming. Um nor is it i mean especially when you say pete in the real world in the 20th and 21st centuries they're doing this with one kind of human waste to take out what you want and get rid of what you don't um i don't know that with the with the story magic of replicator technology and it being a quasi transporter thing break it down to its basics and build it back up again i don't know that it's super shocking it, it certainly is played it's played it's played in a humorous way in the best the best use of this factoid that's possible. I mean, before we've been told that there's certain proteins here, and again, it's not a stretch that you would do this. It, it all makes sense in the recyclable idea, but yeah, was not something I think we'd ever thought we'd necessarily hear in Star Trek, but... There is the distinction that it's 32nd century replicators and, and not the ones we've known all along. Something that really might turn into crap, though, Matt, is this armistice, right? It appeared that they were on the brink of signing it, and then it fell apart at the last minute. Um is that something else that the season finale resolves? I mean, could we see the armistice signed um, by the end of the episode? I think we could. There's a there's a number of things that, in theory, need to be resolved. Um, could it be done so expeditiously? Could we have it in a way that is... Um, how do I want to say this? Could we have it in a way where... Some things are left for for the next season. I mean, that's a possibility as well. Um, I'm I'm thinking too. The season one finale got wrapped up in like 35 minutes, uh, and then there was maybe 10 minutes of you know Burnham gets her rank back, and well, we gets know a medal. from behind the scenes, Matt, what a debacle that was. <laughs> How do you mean, Pete? <laughs> Let's just say we had little birdies there letting us know. That was not the first option presented. Indeed, but I guess it, 
Uh, Pete, I'm going to put it this way. I will be very surprised if we get a 45-minute finale next week. I will be happy if it's somewhere in the 50-minute range. I will be unsurprised if you go, whoa, an hour and six minutes. Okay, this is a this is a hearty meal here. I think it lends itself to a, lo- uh, a longer episode. And last one for me here, Matt. So the president of the Federation is referred to but we have not seen such a person is Kovic, the president of the Federation. I do not think that Kovic is the president of the Federation, but I like that as a sleeper theory. I kind of just read it as, you know, in the normal discussion of the writing room, Hey, Osiris here representing the military political entity. That is the Emerald chain. Um, surely, she should be communicating with the president of the Federation and for the story to say, actually, we're going to stick with Oded fear, the, uh, the international icon, the, um, what's the, what I saw some reference to him as like Admiral daddy or dance because he's daddy Vance or something like that. Pete, though, he's not the gender of my, uh, uh, you know, the, the catches my eye. A lot of people like seeing Oded fear and his, his silver fox beard and whatnot. And I think it made story sense to just say, no, 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 this recurring guy of authority is going to continue to be guy of authority in this episode. But Pete, now you have me watching out for, uh, for Cronenberg in the season finale. We might not have a president, Matt, but we have a whole lot of supporters over on fantastic geeks, Patreon page. Indeed, Pete, so proud to be starting this new year with lots of listener support over there on patreon.com slash fantastic geek. It is a constant reminder for us to be, uh, to be, I don't know, keeping the pedal to the metal here, making fantastic geek the best it can be. And of course we have, uh, we have, uh, our thanks to them for their continued support, keeping us listener supported. And though there's going to be a little bit of a gap in Star Trek, uh, content after, these 22 soon to be 23 consecutive weeks of star Trek until we get presumably lower decks season two. We'll be bringing you WandaVision over there on Disney plus in the next two weeks. That'll turn into Falcon and the winter soldier turn into Loki throughout the spring. And hopefully by then we'll have some more star Trek come and we've got uh, two seasons worth of the Mandalorian up and always looking to the future. So get yourself over to patreon.com slash fantastic geek. You place the value on our content just takes a dollar to get you in that door, all sorts of exclusives uh, to check out and uh, yeah, help us do our thing in 2021. With that, Pete, let's head to hailing frequencies. Healing frequencies open, sir. We start with our Twitter poll this week. Uh, what did people think of the episode? Uh, the choices, Pete, the bottom was, it's replicated apples. Uh, Pete, that was a trick for the, the Star Trek haters who don't uh, watch the episode, who wouldn't know that that was a way of saying that it was a crappy episode. Uh, but that got 4.2%. Pete, I'm proud of this next one here. Blue Man Goop uh, got 0%, I guess. People are brokenhearted at the loss of Rin and just couldn't vote for it. Uh, Osira, best deals. Uh, angry emoji, orange emoji, got 8.3%. And then I love you 800, got 87.5%. Pete, this one of the highest rated 
Star Trek episodes that we have podcasted. And again, you know, Freaks had a little bit of a, a letdown with the previous episode he directed. I would argue it was not because of his direction. It was more so because of the story. And there were a lot of disparate parts there setting up what was coming with George O. Um, but yeah, I think uh, the audience here hit the nail on the head. By the way, Pete, you mentioned Jonathan Frakes. He will be back in Toronto to start to film his next episode. Uh, he's back in Toronto either tomorrow or Monday. Uh, we know that it was mentioned in the waning moments of the uh, the most recent uh, Trek the Vote, uh, the next election um, panel slash fundraiser that was held that we happily attended that had a bunch of Star Trek talent in there. At the end, Anthony Rapp was saying... Uh, Frakes, Frakes, when are you going to be back in Toronto? And he's, I don't remember whether he said the 2nd or January 2nd or, or pardon me, January 3rd or January 4th. But Pete, here we are just having watched a Frakes episode. He's making the next one like Monday. That's pretty good. Yeah, monitoring that comm traffic there. I got to wonder if that was inadvertent that they let that go. But, you know, done for the uh, Georgia elections, the, the two senatorial runoffs there that are apparently... Um, questioned at the highest level um and i know pete and you know we'll, we'll keep things uh politically general here but i know some people down on the prospects there you got to be in the game to try and win the game and i don't think two or three months ago anybody would have thought that the game would be still going on the first monday and tuesday in january so it, it is what it is um pete moving back to the twitter uh, responses here we heard from jt adkins it's at jta is me first of all excellent job number one jonathan frakes and excellent writing kenneth lynn what a perfect combination of action and thoughtful dialogue and complexity and the mystery of a high stakes cat and mouse game a uh, perfect episode worthy of the number 800 distinction and another thing jt atkins says Oded Fear and Janet Kidder killed it on the negotiation with a respectful nod to the lie detector. A very thoughtful, tense interaction that played with issues without preaching and concluded dramatically true to all that had gone before. We also heard from Andre Yeager, that's at Dr. Polo1983. Great episode, had a real epic movie feel. Tilly is really growing as a leader, and I can see this heading to a promotion for her. The crew respects her as well. Have to wait another week to see how this ends. I knew the old movie would lead to the sphere data. Uh, Pete, one more turn here. I guess I'm reading the thread slightly out of order. One more tweet here from JT Atkins. And with a great turn from Mr. Kenneth Mitchell. The interactions between him and Anthony Rapp were an incredibly effective, compelling, and an important part of the episode. Discovery needs to rescue him and keep him on board. Pete, I had not considered that as a possibility. I think that it would be fitting on a variety of levels to somehow have uh, Ken Mitchell's character be redeemed and uh, be appearing uh, much more in season four. I mean, sign me up for that. The, the real world concern of an incurable illness, I've got to wonder like how that affects his time on the set uh, producing a show. Um, but yeah, let's, let's, hope that that could be the case i would hope that if you're if you're presenting him as a character who does not need prosthetic makeup kenneth mitchell has grown a beard so presumably that even that, that cuts down on prep time as well um 
if you know, hey, he can he can do, you know, uh, three eight hour days, but much more than that is not up to his energy level or, you know, he needs to lie down, stand up, you know, whatever it is. Um, I feel like, hey, show, here's an opportunity to do right by the actor, to do right by somebody who's got a, you know, an illness slash disability. I, I think it's win, win, win. Um, and, and the right thing to do, certainly moving on to James, the sagacious that's at big killing on Twitter. Great episode. Can't wait for the climax, hoping to see mama Burnham and maybe some Vulcan Romulans come to Discovery's aid. Happy new year. Uh, we heard from spider ham Lincoln. That's at Tess LC one three nine, who says as follows, this was a good middle episode to the end of season trilogy. I no longer have concerns about Admiral Vance. He seems legit. Nice to see Tilly really take charge. Her crew was looking to her for that leadership while they were hostages in the ready room. And those fear data dots will certainly add some oomph to the retaking of the ship. I'll miss Rin the Andorian. I was hoping he might have stayed with the cast next year. Pete, I'll pause Spider-Ham Lincoln's words for a moment just to say the fact and, and maybe this is maybe this is a you know quite a place to be looking for theories but the fact that the uh star trek cast and crew dungeons and dragons meetups that occasionally get screenshots uh, courtesy of some of the players there the fact that it shows uh noah averback cats and um mary wiseman as both playing but playing kind of in separate zoom squares um is that suggesting he's in new york or la and she's in toronto you know that, that kind of thing so anyhow pete back to spider ham lincoln's words here burnham has always uh some difficult choices to make but they're always for the right reasons the greater good she and stamets will have some things to work through when this is all said and done uh, I didn't miss the Nebula trio this week because I assume they'll be a major focus for the finale. One thing that still bothers me, why would baby Saru's hollow daycare center change Saru to look human when the kid has a Kelpian storyteller? Uh, as if a human appearance was good enough for Saru, why change Burnham and Culber at all? Seems like the production decision was just to showcase Doug Jones's face and not for any plausible story necessity. Maybe I missed the story reason for changing the humans to Bajoran and Trill, but it didn't make sense. I hope there's some long-term or permanent consequences at the end of the finale. I don't wish for a main character death, bye-bye Booker, and those consequences uh, can even be good and promising and positive, but I hope there's something to keep us hungry until season four airs. As always, your podcasts are simply fantastic. Last tweet, Pete, in reply to this, we had a tweet from uh, Ramon Urquiza, that's uh, R-A-U-R-Q-U-I-Z on Twitter, who had this great screenshot showing the different um, titles of the 100 episodes or the 800 episodes or installments, uh, that the first being The Man Trap, number 100 being How Sharper Than the Serpent's Tooth, and then counting up from there, Cupid, Rivals, Return to Grace, Message in a Bottle, Muse, The Forgotten, and then, of course, this episode here uh pete that uh person on twitter did not reply to my query which i will now give to you what episode is of star trek is a first a last and the 80th i didn't understand your question the first episode created of star trek is the cage the last episode of uh classic trek to air is the cage and it is the 80th episode to air Okay, there, there you go. <laughs> My fun little factoid. Pete, what, what do you have what over there? What struck me as interesting with the list of 
you know, first, 100th, 200th, all the way to 800th, there seems to only be one all-timer there in uh, The Man Trap. None of the other episodes were ones that you would really say were landmarks. Yeah, I guess just a funny a funny bounce of the numbers. Uh, what do you have there over on Facebook? Robert T. Frost writes into the Fantastic Geek Facebook page. Hello, Matt and Pete. Work has been really busy, so now I'm playing catch-up with feedback, and this covers Terra Firma 1 and 2 and Sukal. I'm not a super fan of Terra Firma 1 and 2. The episodes feel shoved into place. They needed to wrap up the Giorgio storyline, and the show was quickly running out of season. Also, I don't understand Admiral Vance's reasoning. Back when Burnham went on her rogue discover or her rogue mission to save Book, uh, he was furious that Discovery's executive officer abandoned her post to save just one person. But now, with the Giorgio matter, he counsels Captain Saru that his crew would judge him negatively for not giving 100% support for a single person who was not officially a member of the crew. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but Giorgio seems to be more of an asset attached to Discovery because of her unique status than named as an official crew member listed on the ship's roster. And this advice that he gives that the needs of this one person outweigh the needs of the many comes at a time of heightened tensions with the Emerald Chain that are on the verge of outright hostilities where Discovery's unique spore drive makes her the most valuable asset in a fight. Furthermore, I'm confused as to why Giorgio gets special consideration from the Guardian. The Guardian said it went into hiding because of the abuse and misuse it was subjected to during the Temporal Wars, so much so that it even changes its appearance. Granted, the sphere data gives Burnham and Giorgio the location for a 5% chance of a cure, but why does the Guardian allow her to have this special evaluation for her humanity? To judge her growth? Why does Giorgio, out of the billions of beings in the galaxy, get this special chance? Just because Burnham and Giorgio found the Guardian and no one else has managed to? Seems kind of flimsy to me. That said, I do believe we saw some of the best acting by our cast so far. Sonequa Martin-Green absolutely killed it as her mirror universe self. I also love uh, Oyen Odeyalo as Awokshan, and her intensity and fierce loyalty to the Emperor stood out. As for episode 11, Sukal, I didn't like it. Again, some excellent individual performances by Doug Jones and Wilson Cruz were the highlight of the episode. What I didn't like was the episode's story. It felt flat and stale, like a carbonated drink that had lost its fizz. And while the origin of the burn is interesting, it left me scratching my head. I agree with the criticisms that were enumerated, so I won't relist them here. However... There was one in particular. I don't like the undertones that the story gave off about Saru. 
subtly implying that he is becoming too distracted and preoccupied with this Kelpian heritage to be in command or be the captain. I cry foul, show foul. He has built up and shown uh, to be growing, maturing, and adapting as a captain to uh, now suddenly give appearances of setting him up for a command failure and a change in leadership? Again, I cry foul. Lastly, grudge the cat. I suddenly remember the original series episode Assignment Earth, a backdoor pilot that fell through, that had a character called Gary Seven, and he had a cat named Isis that would transform into an alluring woman. I wonder if grudge is the same, but we just haven't seen it yet. Hopefully, I'll get to watch the next episode this weekend. Your friend, Bob. Pete, I happen to have a really soft spot for um, the Assignment Earth episode of Classic Trek. I think it's a great pilot. Obviously, the show went nowhere. It's also kind of weird to watch because... It's Gene Roddenberry giving up on Star Trek and saying, hey, before the show gets canceled at the end of the second season, let me make a pilot for another show. Um, so I think there's it's kind of emotionally complicated from that perspective. But it's a fun it's a fun concept for a show. All season, Pete, you've been saying, wait, there's something special about grudge. And I, I grant you, OK, she's a queen, not a cat. And blah, 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 blah. there's been all of that. Um, can we say this, Pete? If they don't pay it off in the season finale, she's just a cat. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you you have to make good on the repeated references. I'm I'm not going to go back and watch all 12 episodes prior to the finale next week, but I guarantee you it's been said half a dozen, if not more times. Uh, Pete, let's now head to an email from Paula and it kind of it's covering a lot of the different things that we podcast, but I think that it uh, it, it certainly has the best home here in our Star Trek podcast. So uh, Pete, get ready to be taken across a couple galaxies of storytelling here. When The Force Awakens came out, I came across a quote from J.J. Abrams to the effect that he couldn't understand why any girls were Star Wars fans since there were so few females in the movies. I was astounded not only that he would say something like that, but also that he was demonstrating his lack of understanding how anyone other than white males could appreciate his movies. I've been listening to your Star Trek and Star Wars podcasts for several years now. I've only uh, turned into a few, uh, tuned into a few of the Mar- ones in the Marvel Universe. I did see the first films released in the MCU, Iron Man and Spider-Man, uh, but I found them to be oriented almost totally to a male perspective, which I thought limited them. I saw a couple others, but uh, as you might guess, enjoyed only Black Panther and Captain Marvel. I should confess I've never seen Endgame or Infinity War because, well, it's not a game of numbers. You see, women, people of color, and all other under- and unrepresented groups can indeed become fans of art, which stems from a universal human point of view, one that does not depend on specific characteristics belonging to one group, be that white males, as, uh, which it usually is, or any other. I could identify with Spock as an intelligent, compassionate, and logical individual, just as I could do the same for Obi-Wan Kenobi, and that kept me coming back for more uh, than 50 years. Kirk's lament for Spock at his death, he was the most human, uh, being that he has ever known, got right to the crux of the matter. Those, quote-unquote, fans who cannot uh, consent to allowing any perspective other than their own into what should be universal stories may finally end up bringing everything down. Only time will tell. 
History has a way of being the ultimate judge. Hey, want to watch Annie Hall? Keep up the good work, guys. Watch the snark. Pete, that from Paula. I do not want to watch Annie Hall. (laughs) So give me the Star Wars. Give me the Star Trek. These stories are universal. And um, I think we're at a critical point in fandom in general. You know, we've, we've had gatekeepers attempt to say that, you know, certain people aren't welcome to enjoy stories, which is just lame. And then that, you know, stories come from a a certain perspective. Otherwise, they're turned off by it. Just really lame. Very well said there, Pete. And I think that, you know, we're fortunate to have uh, all of these properties, Marvel, Star Trek, Star Wars, uh, more interested in diverse storytelling and diverse characters and hopefully... Uh, for the likes of you and I that are maybe seeing less white males in these shows, uh, I know for you and I specifically, it's not a turnoff in any way. Um, and I would hope for most of the longer term white male fans that it's not an issue for them as well. Bottom line, Pete, there are fantastic stories going on in all of these uh, story universes and they're, they're stories that can be uh, very much celebrated. With that, Pete, I, look, I know there's lots of fan love out there for uh, Admiral Daddy Vance, as some call him. Pete, I think, too, so there is fan love for, uh, I won't say Daddy Fred, although I know he is a father, but let's hear now from our Admiral Fred from the Netherlands. Hello, Matt and Pete, and all listeners to Fantastic Geek. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Discovery Season 3. Episode 12, the penultimate episode of Season 3. First off, I really think that Tilly does a good job, but it feels a little unreal to have a person so certain of herself and actually being so young in age as well as in experience. Actually, it feels quite unrealistic. So every time she acts quite tough, it feels immediately also unreal. But I don't want to say anything about the acting of Mary Wiseman. That's quite okay, but it's just in the writing. I was quite amazed about the negotiation between the Admiral and Odessa. Actually, she came with a good proposition and I thought he was riding his Federation horse a little bit too much. Because she even wanted to step down as a leader in the sense of that the face of the Emerald's participation in the Federation had to be somebody else. She even understood that. I found his negotiations a little bit unequal because the Admiral had a AI lie detector sitting there. But how does she know he doesn't lie? Where is her own lie detector? How often did this lie detector, if it was a neutral one, say, oh, what the Admiral is saying is the truth? Just start this alliance, get peace, and then see it later when you get her into a trial or something like that. It's already so amazing what she proposes and genuinely meant it. Of course, I like the 3.23s at the end. I only was amazed that in just 3.23s all sphere data fit. Same is true in the beginning when one of Odessa's Lieutenant says that there is a little piece of data they don't control yet. 
How so, little piece of data? And at the end, I just found it a mean trick by Stamets, saying to Michael, and we just followed you because we didn't want to leave you alone in this future, etc., etc. Whereas they actually went to the future because that was the only place where the sphere data would be safe. And it's more or less the other way around. Uh, Michael had to sacrifice herself to find the way through this wormhole-like structure so that the discovery with the sphere data could follow her. Or am I wrong there? So, not so nice trick, Stamets. But yeah, if you are going to lose the love of your life, you are saying everything. Obviously. This gives me another idea, by the way. One of the reasons the discovery had to go to the future was because the sphere data was fully integrated in the computer systems of the discovery. And now is the sphere data in 3.23 robots? What? Okay, that was all for now. Greetings, all the best, Fred from the Netherlands. Pete, some really interesting points there from Fred. Uh, though I don't completely share his concerns um uh, as to tilly's leadership acumen i love how fred put it that he wants the writing to elevate itself to be the equal of mary wiseman's acting i completely buy uh tilly in this position um so i'm, I'm kind of surprised that fred's drawn a distinction side note matt fred called osira odessa so i have to wonder in the netherlands language difference maybe is the name changed Ooh, that is interesting uh maybe pete maybe fred is just a big fan of the third most populous city in the ukraine itself a major tourist center seaport and transport hub i don't know um fred also raised uh, pete i must confess something i had not considered and i happen to agree with him perfectly all that giant sphere data fits into what appears to be earth entertainment files that then also can fit into three dots um what's your response to that pete and should we be worried about the long-term fidelity of all of the sphere data i think the sphere data cordons itself off when it needs to to protect itself to protect the crew um you can assume that these dots are integrated within the systems of the ship like parts of them uh it's also something that's retroactively been done that they've not been there from the start of discovery they've been incorporated as we've gone through the seasons and then you consider the uh the short treks so i'm fine with it and this notion here um that you know stamets obviously very emotional over the prospective loss of the love of his life uh fred reminding everyone that it was actually the ship of discovery that needed to get to the future uh in order to protect the future and to protect the then present day everybody else who stayed just voted to stay on the ship so uh unfair albeit emotional concern there sent by stamets pete I think it's fair given, you know, they they left everything in the past. We've seen the cost of that. We've seen people uh, attempt to reconcile that throughout the season. That's been an underlying theme. So to have it voiced here at a moment of high, if not highest tension, I, I think it was fair game. Pete, as we count down to 
this final episode of season three? How can people be in touch with you to share their their theories, their concerns, their nervousness? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 11,739 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter is looking back lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on fantasticgeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with the P and the H, all one word, like it today. With The Mandalorian having wrapped up, Pete, we now move into a rather unusual phase, at least since Mandalorian had returned at the end of uh, October one podcast a week so we'll be back this time next saturday to talk episode 313 of star trek discovery with that pete i will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word my whole life is in that nebula 